Todd McGowan, for example, thinks that the worst thing Lacan ever wrote was his little essay on the mirror stage. And that the fact that this is considered the famous Lacan text uh, is like a, a fundamental tragedy to yeah. Lacanian scholarship. Because one, he completely reworks the, uh, the, the imaginary, the ego, throughout the course of his career, right? Uh, when he wrote that essay, he originally wrote it early on. I think it was in the 30s or something. And then he rewrote it uh, in 49, I believe. It might, the dates are probably off, but it's something somewhere along there. And he's that's where he was really still just in his imaginary period. And, and for somebody listening new, um, we're using imaginary in a very technical sense. What it means is... Watch the first lecture. It's really on, fucking good. Yeah, he was focusing on concepts of like recognition, misrecognition, the ego, uh, primary identification, where he has this theory early on in his career that the way your ego is formed, the ego isn't something that's just intrinsic to consciousness from its inception, like it is for Descartes, for example. The ego actually gets produced, and his theory is that uh, consciousness for the young baby is completely fragmented and it's only when the baby encounters its reflection in the mirror that it makes this primary identification it goes oh that's me and it's through this recognition of this whole object right where i mean whole in the sense that it can get a view of it and it's only through that identification that it's able to gain a sense of wholeness over itself and so this is where the ego is produced uh for lacan is through this encounter with your mirror image. But this is before he really gets big into language, which we would call a symbolic period. And this is also before he gets into his, you know, his most important period, which is the period centered around the real, which mm-hmm. we'll just call that his late period, right? And he's always reworking how this stuff works. But that first essay that we have in the Acree on the mirror stage, that's pre-symbolic period and pre-real period. And so, so the, the, but, but that's so, one that students are always having to read. So in the first lecture, when we talked about the imaginary, the symbolic and the real, and for those who are just joining us or those who need a refresher, the three form a Venn diagram. Oh, hold on. Jeez. Who would, who would ever call me? Um... Well, we've got the symbolic, the real, and the imaginary, and uh, reality is that thing in the middle. Is that right? And then... Um, uh, it, reality is where the intersection between symbolic and imaginary. But here's the thing. like, This is really just to say, when people go to Lacan, they often focus in on this early essay of his on the yeah. mirror stage. And it really... It, it doesn't even do the mirror stage justice because he rethinks it, especially in his symbolic... His middle period... Okay. And so he realizes that so much more has to do with this, uh, the formation of the ego, language and the other and all these other things. So, so, so but I guess my, my question thing. was, is that stuff just completely absent in the earlier stuff or does, does the theory fundamentally change or is it just like he, he was already working with those three registers and then he decided, you know, he kind of just moves through phases of focusing in and researching that specific no, register. It, it changes. Like it, the way he reformulates it, I think there's one a cream, I think, but it, like, for example, in seminar eight on transference, no, it's, it, he totally updates it. So, oh, wow. Yeah. 
And oh, so, yeah, okay. I, I just said that to basically say, like, the, the thing that students at college are always given, if they're given anything to read by Lacan, McGowan points out, it's like the worst thing they can be given to read by them. So, yeah, that's what that's what we read in a, in a it was an English critical theory class. And uh, yeah. that was the Lacan we read. So. So, OK, so getting back because you were talking about recognition and all this life world stuff. Lacan says in Subversion of the Subject and the Dialectic of Desire, uh, which is one of the writings in the Acree, he says, it is jouissance whose absence would render the universe vain. And so his point is, even though when we have excessive jouissance in our lives and that can destabilize our lives, it's ultimately what's giving us a reason to live. Like, we think that there's some sort of mythical, sublime enjoyment that we don't currently have, but at some point we'll actually attain it and it's this kind of fantasy of gaining yes. this kind of sacred sublime almost otherworldly jouissance that keeps us moving and and if human beings didn't actually think they were going to get this enjoyment in the future it would it would just make everything collapse for them so in a weird way you know existentialism is always putting this emphasis on meaning like your your personal existential project or whatever but at an unconscious level your unconscious really doesn't care about meaning your your ego does your your self-consciousness does but really what your unconsciousness is focused on is jouissance and if you ever feel like that jouissance is not going to happen it will it can like shatter the psyche and so Jouissance or the fantasy of jouissance is what keeps us moving. Um, and, mm. and so the thing, though, with Death Drive, uh, and this is important, this is from Seminar 7, he says, Drive can in no way be limited to a psychological notion. It is absolutely fundamental. It is an absolutely fundamental ontological notion. And again, the point of that is that this is baked into our very being, that it's not something that, oh, it's some inessential thing about us that gets out of control, but ultimately we can get it under control or even we can neutralize it entirely. No, we are fundamentally dry. And because it's part of our ontology, it's one of those things like we have to deal with this to understand human reality and how it works. Well, I mean, drive is like the biggest thing that gets in the way of just doing philosophy in the first place, right? Like in, in a sort of sense, maybe it's also why you're doing philosophy. Who knows? But it's just also yeah, a lot like, of people want to break their world down. When right? you get hungry, kind of, you know, when you, oh, oh yeah, 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 exactly. That might be why they're studying it. But like, yeah, but when you get hungry, you can't read anymore. Right. Uh, you completely yeah, lose I think that, that would have to do with pleasure. Right. It's just these these pains become so intense. Um it's oh, like wow, you, look want, at me. You, yeah. you can go back. To, that's the whole thing. Remember, like pleasure principle, it wants to put us in a state of pleasure. Precisely, that's how we can function. Like we, you know, mm. to, to study, right? Try reading or studying with just overabundance of excitation flowing through you. It's not going to work. Yeah, yeah. It, you kind of have to be in a somewhat tranquil. Like you have to get into a certain mind state to even be able to do it. You know. Yeah. And so, okay, two more real fast quotes, and then we'll, it's like, all of this was kind of prefaced, but we'll, the rest we'll get, we'll get it flowing here. So, right. uh, Zizek says in The Abyss of Freedom, 
he says, insofar as for Lacan, drive as such is ultimately the death drive. The Freudian antagonism between Eros and Thanatos has to be transposed within the death drive itself. Now, this is interesting. He's not denying the pleasure principle. He's not saying that the pleasure principle is just uh, is like somehow reducible to death drive. He's trying to formulate what death drive is actually after, right? So he says, the death drive thus stands simultaneously for life that persists beyond what Lacan calls the first biological death, the life of the undead, and for the endeavor to end up this very life beyond death. Eros designates the horrifying real of the love slash life beyond of the immortal drive, while Thanatos stands for the striving to end this horror. So that's very complicated, right? But his point is that, and this is the best way, and he talks about it other places. So when you think death drive, you think, oh, it's a drive that literally wants to bring about our biological death, our literal death. That is not what death drive is after. And his point is that death drive is after a kind of life, but it's a life that's more an undead life, kind of the, the life of a zombie, right? It's where you're just stuck in this permanent state of intense enjoyment, right? Zombies can't be rational. They can't pursue their own self. Like They don't do any of that. They just follow the drive, which for them is their oral drive. They always want to eat. They're always consuming, consuming, consuming. And that's kind of the life, the immortal drive that uh, he sees in Death Drive. And so that's one of the big misconceptions, is that Death Drive is actually seeking our literal biological death. No, Drive wants enjoyment. Drive wants the jouissance it gets from not getting what it wants. I know that that sounds like standard like philo philosophical turn of phrase, but we'll see how that actually works. And so if Drive is actually fixated on jouissance, right, it doesn't actually want you to die because then it wouldn't get jouissance. It, it wants, it's like Drive pursues this kind of dumb, stupid state of just excessive excitation, and it wants to dwell there. And this, it, this state would be beyond our life world. It would be beyond, like, coherent, rational society. Uh, it would just be the dumb, immortal existence of the Drive. And so that's why Zizek is often likening Drive to zombies. That's good. That's what he he th he thinks that death drive seeks this kind of in between between life as we know it and actual biological death. How much do you think ideology gets used to sort of rationalize uh, going for pleasure or going for jouissance or or a lifestyle that's juggling them both in a certain way? Instead of some other way. That's what the, I mean, Zizek's whole career and McGowan's in part has been exploring how libidinal economy relates to politics and ideology. And it's incredibly nuanced and, you know, different political fascism works differently. And then, you know, we talk about fascism. Of course, there's a certain structure common to different fascist societies, but we'd also have to take into play the particularity of those societies. The same with communist societies, the same with, you know, uh, France and America are both capitalist societies, but they're very, very different with different 
social libidinal economies. And mm. so uh, that's part of what this toolkit of concepts gives us, uh, ways of analyzing what's going on in our particular libidinal economies, both at an individual level and at a societal level. And mm. with, I mean, this like this could take take us another hour of discussion to go through. But I mean, obviously, Trump has. I mean, part of his appeal is people actually feel like they've lost certain enjoyment, and it really comes from. I mean, we never they talk about the recovery, but we never went back to the old way, the old American consumer society of the pre. Great Recession days. That economy never came back. Oh yeah, it came back on paper. It came back for Wall Street, but it didn't mm. come back for the average American. And so, so much of their dumb consumer enjoyment, which I, I'm not saying that to be dismissive because this shit really organizes our lives. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what that's what the appeal. He, that's the appeal he had to so many Americans was, and this is why people are often so libidinally invested in the figure of a master, right? Because you know that somehow you've lost some enjoyment, and it can be both. You've lost your enjoyment and your pleasure, right? Both are, both seem lost, right? Um, and the situation is completely complicated. Why the, the figure of the master can be so appealing is you think that this person is going to step in and fix the system, and so you can go back to your pleasure slash jouissance, right? I mean, I, I, I like to talk about pleasure and jouissance because I think both are operative. Zizek and McGowan and them, they always put the emphasis solely on jouissance. Hmm. And the thing is, Lacan in Seminar 7 points out there's also a thing called pain, right? We don't want to reduce all pain to jouissance. There's certain hmm. pain, like there's certain forms of jouissance that obviously give us trouble and cause us pain, but that's not to say that every form of pain is jouissance. And we have to make a kind of threefold distinction between pleasure, pain, and jouissance. And so many people have just been in pain for so long that they don't have either pleasure, they don't have a sense of safety, security, nor do they have the old forms of consumer enjoy spending too much having disposable money to blow at the mall right all the dumb excessive kind of forms of jouissance have also been problematized because people can't afford to live the way they used to and so many people just want things to go with part of make america great again at the libidinal level is i want to enjoy my dumb consumer shit again the way i used to and that it's important to understand the function of the master because what the master essentially does for people is it, it like embodies the hope that they're going to get some sort of lost jouissance some sort of enjoyment that they once had or that they've always desired and never have attained and they think that the master who can step into the situation it's like that master can hack the system and if i obey the master if i side with the master then i'll partake of his excessive enjoyment right because the master there's a fantasy that's always at work in human beings, and it's the the it's called the myth of the primordial father or the primal father in Freud. And you know, if we ever do a a, a discussion of sexuation, we'll definitely have to get into the primal father. But we got to do it someday. The, the, yeah, the point with the primal father is not that this was actually a, a real historical person. 
it's that this myth operates in human society, this fantasy. And the fantasy is the, the person who avoids castration, which means the person who, for whatever reason, due to power, due to vitality, is able to go, you're not putting limits on my enjoyment. Fuck you. I will put limits on your enjoyment. Right? And so the appeal of the master is not only do I think it, it basically works like this. The master is the one that the system can't get a hold of. And because of that, it's as if the master's outside law, the state of the exception, like in Agamben, right? And whenever you position somebody as operating without outside of the norms or laws that usually govern the situation, you unconsciously attribute to them excessive jouissance because what for us is beyond the pleasure principle or what is beyond the law is excessive jouissance, right? No limitations on our enjoyment. Hmm. So if you make the connection, oh, and, and here's the thing, Trump did this, right? He constantly was breaking all of the, quote, PC norms and standards, all of the, the liberal doctrines, right? He was constantly getting away with it. He still gets away with shit that nobody else would get away with. That is why people end up being so libidinally invested in him is he continuously operates outside of the norm standards laws protocols of our given ideological configuration and gets away with it so if he has this ability if for, he's that powerful or that vital right which is laughable but i see why certain people go for this right if he's able to do it if, if he has this excessive enjoyment and i side with him then i'll get to partake of his excessive enjoyment by obeying him and so this is why people end up being so libidinally invested in the master figure. Of course, part of ideology critique would always be to highlight the lack. Like this person is castrated. This person does not have this mythological jouissance. It, oh, it's, like, it's, it's yeah. all bluff. It's all a fake. And yet this is why people are so libidinally invested in master figures so often is – this idea because in a weird you know how we as americans the 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 common american fan we all want to be the rich capitalist or the, the or the person who wins the lottery but no so we, we all have these fantasies and um the thing is to be the person who wins the lottery or to be the filthy rich capitalist when you think about it we know that people who have that kind of excessive wealth they operate without outside of the confines of our normal rules and protocols and so again they 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 actually occupy this position of the primal father the person who doesn't have any limitations placed on their enjoyment and since in a certain way we fantasize about being that that's what causes us to identify with these uh figures so much and I mean, Trump's most diehard supporters, you see how libidinally invested they are in him. It's crazy. But <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> yeah, but once you start to understand, this is why I love psychoanalysis. Once you understand what's going on with our libidinal economies, it's no longer crazy. It becomes, you, you go from it being like mind blowing, like you can't believe it, to going, duh. That's what the power of psychoanalysis is, where. Oh, I see exactly why they go for it. It's very clear that he seems that he he gets away with everything. He traverses all of the laws that they feel like have caused them pain. And they feel like through this master figure, he's going to restore a kind of enjoyment that they, uh, they feel like they've lost. And this is where so much of politics has less to do with meaning or ideas and has everything to do 
with our libidinal economies, with what, you know, the enjoyment we're all chasing. Mm. In an attempt to bring in new people to the world of philosophy and theory while building on relationships already established, we are doing a countrywide tour of the United States this fall. What's up, guys? It's Anna Dave. Are we coming to a city or a town near you? Do you think there is a venue or audience in your local region that would be interested in a lecture or facilitated discussion about existentialism, critiques of therapism, PMC ideology, self-help, introduction to philosophy, or the time energy critique of any of those things. This speaking and discussion facilitation tour will include the Pacific Northwest in mid-August, the Kansas City, Missouri area late August or early September, Philadelphia at the beginning of October, and really we're going to be all over the area there hopefully, so get in contact with us if you think that we should come visit your state. Phoenix, Arizona, mid-October, and SoCal, especially San Diego, late October. I say especially San Diego because we already have our guide for the San Diego region. What's the difference between a host, a guide, and a volunteer, you ask? Well, thanks for asking, actually. The volunteer role is for people who want to put up posters or in other ways promote the events that will be occurring in their town or city. Whereas the host might have a guest bedroom, guest house, or a place that we can park our van so that we can sleep in our van. We need to know if you would have like bathroom facilities or anything like that. And so the form on the website is where you can tell us what you have to offer. Guiding on the other hand though, people who love to guide take a lot of pride in their local knowledge. A good example of that would be Michael Downs when I visited him in Raytown, Missouri, and he took me into Kansas City and we had barbecue and he took me to the mall and to all these other landmark places from his life growing up there. Um, but a more recent example would be my friend Michael in Poland who took us around Katowice, Poland and basically gives a historical and sociological analysis of everything and it was amazing. It was, it was one of the coolest things we've ever experienced and it made us realize some people just want to provide the space and privacy whereas other people want to take you out and show you around and so if you're interested in being a volunteer host or guide we have a special form for that so please fill out your information and uh, get in contact with us as soon as possible so we can fit you into the schedule because we'll love to meet you touch base with the local community and if you don't think anyone else in your area is interested in the things that you're interested in, if you don't think anyone else is into this stuff, well, we might be able to surprise you. When I saw that poster, Boldrillard in Boise fucking Idaho, are you kidding me? It was virtually an, an answer to an unspoken prayer, you know, really was. And I just couldn't believe that somebody was interested in the things that I was interested in that I had been interested in for years and had kind of given up on in, in futility. I'd labored in solitude for so long, I had no one to talk to about it, no one to bounce ideas off. This tour is going to bring together a lot of people who want to be based in text with the people they're in conversation with and 
yeah, I think it's going to be a fantastic year. Uh, the only other thing that I want to say is that Michael Downs' first book is going to be published by Theory Underground really soon here. I've got another book coming out really soon here. These books will be spread throughout the United States on this tour. So I'm hoping to be able to do some actual book launch events at various bookstores. Outside of that, I guess the last thing that I would say is that Michael Downs is gearing up to teach For They Know Not What They Do by Slavoj Žižek. We're putting out all these introduction videos and other interviews related to the topic of Hegel, Lacan, Žižek because we want to give people an accessible and sturdy basis in the discourse. The problem is, is that Michael Downs is very busy having to work at a wage slave job. And so if you want to help in freeing Mikey, make sure to go to his Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the dangerous baby and make a donation. Thank you. I would be remiss to close this out without a quick shout out to our patrons and our anonymous donors. Thank you so much for the donations already. We've only been around for a month. We already got over $3,000 in donations. Um, and so thank you. And uh, stay tuned for the app, which is on its way. There will be a Theory Underground app. So the current setup is that it is a social media site built around courses where you can suppose that people who are involved in the discussions have a shared interest in the same or similar texts and where you can assume in a lot of the discussions that, yeah, people have read the stuff that you're reading, uh, that you're bringing into dialogue. And so, uh, for instance, the idea of the University by Carl Jaspers, dedicated forum. Slavoj Zizek's For They Don't Know What They Do, dedicated forum. And then as people take the course over the years, new people will be coming into that forum. And so if you get in there early, you'll be able to see how the conversation evolves. And as new people add into the conversation, it'll bring back memories and like things that you want to work through, questions that you had with the first time that you read the text. And so I'm really excited for this. The reason I've built this website is because I think that this is what's lacking in so many other spaces, is that ability to return, to be able to communicate after the fact and in a sustained way on a platform that's not attention grabby and annoying like discord and so stay tuned because there is an app on the way thank you to our donors if you want to donate go to theory underground.com forward slash support thank you